Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at the URJ Biennial in December of 2020. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast from the URJ Biennial, and it's my particular pleasure today to welcome my friends and colleagues, Jeremy Lee and Dr. Leslie Littman. Jeremy Lee grew up in London, where he studied Jewish history before moving to Israel in 1992. He's been teaching Jewish history and Israel studies at our institution, Hebrew Union College, since 2002, and he has also developed a career in and around Jewish travel, writing, guiding, and developing educational programs for visiting sites of the Jewish story around the world. Dr. Leslie Lindman is the director of the Executive MA Program in Jewish Education at Hebrew Union College as well, and she's the lead consultant for the Experiment in Congregational Education, as well as coordinator of HUC's Day School Externship. She also consults to the I Center in the area of curriculum design and professional development in Israel education. Jeremy and Leslie, thank you for joining me on the comments. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Jeremy, the first question I want to ask is to you, um, because in preparing for this interview, I came across a 2016 article. You wrote a scathing but sophisticated critique of a UNESCO resolution. Oh, yeah. Intended, now this UNESCO resolution had been intended to cast aspersions on the historical relationship between the Jewish people on the one hand and the Western Wall and metonymically Jerusalem and Israel uh, on on the other hand and in your rejoinder to this resolution you argue that at least to some degree historical which is to say provable demonstrable um, connections uh, over history should not be the sole determining factor for a legitimate connection between people and a place you write quote belief rather than proof could should also have currency. In other words, lots of religions have deep historical claims that may run up against a point where you really can't prove a connection. But we should respect the power of belief in connection nonetheless. With respect to your specialization of Jewish travel, isn't it the case that the bulk of Jewish travel, especially to Israel, aims to argue proof, not merely to bolster belief? Wow. Um, well, I, I take, probably take one step back with, in terms of the objective of Jewish travel, which is, for me, it's an adjunct to pretty much everything else we do in Jewish education. For me, the education is the engagement in the world of ideas for the purpose of our own growth. And we're growing in relation to being in places and in stories, whether they happened or not. I have absolutely no evidence that... <laughs> the Jews came out of Sinai, it came out of Egypt, and crossed the desert the way that it's written in the Torah. The truth is, I'm not sure I'm going to do a, a, a tourist route there, but I'm certainly <laughs> going to spend every year we, we sit down and we reenact it, and that's absolutely fine. To be a little bit more concrete, because I think if I remember what I was referencing there, <clears throat> Jews may get very hot under the collar about whether the Prophet Muhammad descended from there or not. 
it really does not really matter. I mean, that's why horrible wars take place. There's a respect that if someone for the last 1400 years has been saying that that's been happening, then I then in a way the engagement is the world of ideas, and it's either a a philosophical or a spiritual kind of engagement and, and the, the takeaway what comes out of it what's valuable is where I think education kicks in which is that we engage with it we have a dialogue with it we have a dialogue it with the even with the place but or the idea of the place and then collectively we grow as a result of that and maybe I'll just add one other thing which is a very a key part of the travel thing you know a large part of my approach to education is dialogical it's about about a dialogue between a number of different things there's a dialogue with with the place there's a dialogue with the idea of the place the idea of the people that are living in the place as much as there's a dialogue with me and crucially the people that I'm traveling with so I know that's a catch-all for lots of things but you know you know, you, you, you referenced uh, there, I mean, I'm amazed you found that article, but, but, but there, you know, where it's he- heavily contested, that's the point that I wanted to say. But that's, that's where I want to go with this. In other words, it's easier to talk about diaspora travel and not to necessarily feel the burden of, of concrete historical connection and in some ways to indulge. I guess is what I'm saying, in the more uh, philosophized version of the dialogic uh, relationship between the place and the idea of the place. I get that. But in Israel, where you were, you were number 10 among 100 of the uh, well, Olim, you your own and I, <laughs> uh, you know, ca- ca- pr- called uh, you know, carrying the flag, um, it seems to me like uh, roots travel or heritage okay. travel that there's that there's some real claiming going on, and um, I, I appreciate educationally and as your colleague at the Ibrahim College, I appreciate that you are carrying uh, the banner of a much more sophisticated approach to to that. But but are we not? edging near something more complicated. Well, we, we're definitely... So there, okay, so if we go into the rougher zone of contested space, then whether it's just from my own, you know, political, humanist view of the world, exclusive claims to, 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 to place rarely achieve very much. In, and, and they, but, but I think what's important to say is they cut both ways because... Um, in other words, I'm very frustrated this becomes sort of a, a kind of a flag of the left and sometimes it becomes a flag of the right. Both of them, I think, hide behind depending on what the outcome of what the meaning of a certain site is. So, um, you know, Marat Machpela in Hebron is not the cheeriest place to go if for a kind of a peacenik, kind of liberal view. But if, if, if Jews across whatever political persuasion cannot understand the, the deep rights of Jews to be able to pray in Marat Amachpelah, and with all the awful stuff that has happened and massacres of more recent and massacres of past, the real challenge is to acknowledge that this is sacred to more than one group of people. And actually, this is only holy, in my terms, when everybody is able to reach God there, irrespective of what language and how they're doing it. And the top, thin, annoying surface level of contested space is, an, is it's, on the worst level, it's a distraction. On the best level, it's a source of inspiration. And, uh, I mean, again, if we go back in the 20th century to the disputes that took place in the early 1920s around the Kotel, the Kotel was a source of, of horrible conflict where Jews were denied the ability to pray by the Kotel, which led to some of the riots that tr- triggered off the riots in, in, the, in, the, in the 1920s. And it seemed so distant from, from how we sort of fight about 
how we fight about it today. So the authenticity of the space gets lost. One other one, which maybe is sort of I'm putting out there because I know it's antagonistic, and therefore what the hell I'm going to say, is that I'm, I'm, I'm baffled at the absolute commitment to ensure one set of values works, that women and men and all genders and everybody should be able to pray in an egalitarian way at the Kotel, but Jews can't pray on the Temple Mount. And Muslims will struggle to to pray at the at the Kotel, and and Jews are denied the right to speak. And I'm I'm wondering where's the liberal voice that wants to speak for Jews who want to, at least to recognise that if they want to pray in the Temple Mount, that is legitimate. It may not be politically expedient, but it's but that is much closer to the authentic site, and therefore that's why one wants to almost strip away. I mean, that's the amazing thing that tourism has, tourism has to offer. It becomes a liberating kind of practice because you strip away some of the um, kind of these annoying veneers and you try and get to the essence of what's really going on here if you're up to it in other words if you're right if you approach it yeah and and i think the same is true and i can think of you know many 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 other versions where you know we're not really offending everybody in a way where we're sort of uh, celebrating everybody and not a fan of avodah zarah you know of, of idol worship i don't think there is absolute holiness contained in a stone so you can tell me that god dwelt deeply in this presence but i do not think god particularly wants us to kill people over it and the holiness was when God, when we were doing something there you know the beta mikdash was holy right. because and and so therefore i'm not going to go to the end of the earth to try and have a battle with somebody over an absolute version of holiness whether it's my people or any of the other people and uh, i would love to think i mean there are projects a few of which i've been involved with which about trying to create a democratic peace-oriented tourism um which you know the virtue is they make everyone feel uncomfortable Right, and but they also grant a fundamental legitimacy to the fact that you don't have to go and prove priority to have legitimacy in your vision, because belief has currency of its own, as you said, yeah. and uh, we can work in that realm, and maybe it forces us to be more acknowledging of the other. I would hope so. One would hope so. Let's keep hoping, and maybe doing something about it. Leslie, uh, I want to ask you, in following the Israel theme, What's different generationally about Israel education today as contrasted to a a, a student generation ago, you know, 10 years ago, something like that? 10 years ago? 10, 20 years? 15 years ago? um, You could pick up textbooks about Israel, and what you would find is, let's go on a tour, let's go on a trip to Israel, and they'd go from city to city to city, Lots of stereotypical people of that city actually did uh, an analysis of Israel Israel textbooks uh, published by American publishers. And uh, that basically, after the the Six-Day War period and then the Yom Kippur War, where, you know, Before Yom Kippur, it was like, Israel's amazing, and look at what they've done, and the Ben-Gurion vision of Israel was what was taught. And then I'd say probably after the Yom Kippur War and then moving towards the Intifada, the first Intifada, we saw a shift, and I'm not sure why, of textbooks to... these travel to Israel and have the kids design a trip to Israel. Right. So, and today, um, I'd say with the advent of more focus on Israel education by big funders, um, the the thrust is for learners to build their own relationship with Israel, and whatever that means. And it's interesting that just this morning a piece appeared uh, from uh, the Cincinnati Jewish Teen Collective in eJewish Philanthropy 
that was about building a positive relationship with Israel and how they help teens to build a positive relationship with Israel. Where positive doesn't mean love Israel above all else, but positive means that you can navigate the relationship. That like with any relationship, there are good moments and difficult moments and building, a, according to this article, and I happen to agree with it, I worked on it a little, um, that the notion of positive means real and authentic. And, and do you think that we are in the, in the trenches in Jewish education in North America, let's say, that we are living up to the nuance of that positivity that you've described? We, we certainly have a lot of work to do, particularly with educators who come out of that yay, rah, rah, first love Israel. And it's, it's very common for Israelis, for many, many years, Israelis who came to North America and became the de facto teachers of Israel because they know best because they're Israelis. And the thing that they wanted most was that the, the children love Israel. So any movement from that would just scare them. Our colleague Sivan Zakai has been doing research about uh, kindergartners, young children, and their relationship with Israel. And what she discovered is they actually have a very nuanced relationship with Israel. And the problem isn't with the children, it's with the adults who are afraid they won't love Israel. But like with anything, they can hold two values at the same time. They can know that something's hard and something bad is happening and they know can know that they love something just like a parent right, right you right. get angry at your parents wait, 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 wait. are you implying <laughs> that parents aren't perfect i'm sorry because if so i want like, this interview to end. i <laughs> hate you i never want to see you again can you take me to the mall okay. <laughs> right. got it so so i just wanted to check in with you about uh how aspirational the article you cited was versus how much it's actually kicking in 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 uh schools well, I would certainly say the fact that an article like that is out there mm -hmm. and is not a surprise and no right. one is like jumping off of bridges because of it means that there is an emergent language around it. Um, I also uh, want to go back to this whole generational shift. There seems to be uh, over time a, a generational shift away from Israel, and today's 20-year-olds and the millennials are not connected to Israel. Ted Sassone came out with a re-slicing of that data, and he sliced the data across the decades of a person's life and discovered that people in their 50s today, when they were in their 20s, they were less connected to Israel. But as they got older, their connections to Israel grew just as their connection to Jewish life grows when we kind of go through the life cycle. So I don't know which of those is correct, but I would like to just express a reservation about the assumption that millennials don't care about Israel or people in their 20s don't care about Israel, I think the jury's out. I think there's a similar mathematical dynamic with respect to synagogue membership as well. Exactly. Um, I want to build on that argument by uh, slicing it yet another way, which is that uh, often people speak about comparative disengagement with Israel generationally when what they mean is critique of Israel. And uh, the, the reason I, I think those things ought to be distinguished is because if you re-slice it on a different axis, instead of being uh, loving Israel or not loving Israel, 
if you put it on the axis of being passionate about Israel versus being apathetic about Israel, you find that all of the critique falls on the passion side, which means that they're committed and they care. And, 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 and I think they're really not just highfalutin, ethereal, academic ways to reslice this evidence. I think that there is on the ground uh, meaningful implication for how we build our community around our interpretation of this information. And I think we have important work to do uh, to, to recast some of, some of what you've spoken about very helpfully. Thank you. Can I just add, I, it remind, what you said reminded me of when I have a conversation with a student about God and they say, I don't believe in God. I don't care about right, God. Right, right. It's like, okay, That's good. Right. Let's have that conversation. It's like they're so engaged without believing right. that they're there. They're Clearly. present. And right, it's right. about how to right. keep the conversation going, the dialogue going, and their ability to, to really push back because that's where the growth goes. Thank you, Jeremy. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't have an answer. It's more of a question or it's a point of our conversation. Um, the, the bit that, that intrigues me, and that's why I was interested by, the, you know, with the generational thing, from what ages Israel's being introduced, someone is framing that. Someone, the, there's a moment when you don't know of its existence, and then you do know of its existence because somebody broke your innocence and tells you that that thing exists, the state of Israel. And that, from the very beginning, the bit that intrigues is that's not necessarily only about the young person. It's also the narrator. It's the educator. So the study then is becomes how does somebody then explain what Israel actually is? And that for me is in some ways my point of curiosity because how does someone talk about there's something which is it's not anachronistic but it's a very complicated thing to work out without going back to some core fundamentals. Child growing up in the diaspora, I grew up in the diaspora, reveals to you that there is this place far away where everyone is, not everyone, but most of the people there are Jewish, and Jewishness is somehow embedded in the thing, and it somehow operates on a different kind of level. How does that make sense, then, for younger people who are then going to develop, not necessarily complicated, not necessarily loving or hating, or but it has to already be on the agenda in some way, and the act of getting it on the agenda is the bit which seems to me to be I don't, I don't know if there's a clean and flat way of just kind of acknowledging the existence of Israel without, at the very first instance, essentially saying something which has a value behind it. Which Not is for one Jews. Of, which is one of love or connectedness or, yeah. in other words, it's never, it can't be, it's not, it can't be neutral. And therefore, the, the question, of, I understand there's ge how generations change, but it's not just the generations of young people, it's the generations of people who are narrating that story. What's different today than when we were young and being introduced to Israel is that if you ask young people, even very young people, where they learn about Israel, it's from social media, it's yeah. from the radio. So there is not one person who is opening it up to them. They are taking it in mm -hmm. from all kinds of places. And so then what happens is the educator becomes curator. Mm -hmm. Right, and how do we curate what they're taking in? And uh, one piece of research asked um, Alex Pompson, ask high school kids where they get their day school, high, high school day school, so they're in Jewish high schools, ask where do you get your, most of your information about Israel? And they say from the, from the internet, from social media, from my friends. I know my teachers say stuff, but I know they want me to love Israel, but I get my real information outside. But that happens all the way back to a very small child. I, I remember my own child at three years old or four years old um, making a comment. He said, 
how does the radio know it's Barack's birthday? <laughs> His friend Barack, right? They were actually talking about Ehud Barak, but he was listening to the radio and he heard Barack at three or four years old. They're taking it in. So how do we as parents curate? How do we as educators help parents curate that? And I think that's the question. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars. Unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I want to go back to Jeremy's point about uh, contested spaces that we visit um, and bring it in your realm, Leslie, of um, an educational um, idea of enduring dilemmas. And so I want to ask you uh, to describe for us what an enduring dilemma is and what are the implications for Israel education. So Jeremy and I lead a, um, a, a seminar for our executive master's students in Israel, and indeed much of it focuses around enduring dilemmas. So an enduring dilemma is um, a situation in which two values which you hold dear come into tension with one another, and you can't uphold both of them simultaneously. And so the question is, how do you know which value to focus on when? And uh, I'm just thinking, a Jewish state and a democratic state, they come into tension with one another all the time. So how do we know where to put the emphasis and when? And this is one of the pieces in the one-state solution, right? If, if we have a Jewish state and a democratic state, right, how, do, how can those two live together, right? If we have a one-state solution, then we are, which would then privilege being the democratic state, right, the Jewish character of the state, might go away. If we have a two-state solution, then we can have the Jewish character of the state more fully. There's a right-wing version of the one state and a left-wing version of the one state. They're more or less mutually exclusive, except insofar as they both agree on one state. Um, But their visions of how that would look are very different. I think the argument for two-staters is that it's the only solution to the dilemma. Right. Because it's the two-state solution that guarantees a Jewish majority uh, and thereby guarantees both democratic values by virtue correct. of the majority correct. and Jewishness by virtue of that majority right. being Jewish. That's Whereas correct. the one state uh, forces us to, to either give up on our democratic values or, or our, our Jewish values. That's what I – yes. Yes. So um, that's, I, that's a perfect answer to the question. I think it, it's a perfect illustration of, of, of an enduring uh, dilemma. I want to ask you, Jeremy, about a question that um, uh, poked my curiosity based on a, uh, a webinar that you taught for HUC on Alumni Learn. It was on uh, Haredim and um, poverty and interesting dynamics about the ultra-Orthodox in Israel. Uh, we 
being members of the HEC community, are invested in pluralistic Judaism and the enfranchisement of pluralistic Judaism as a, uh, a, a, a with legal standing and and full representation in, in the state of Israel. Um, but when we say pluralism, we therefore also have to care about our oftentimes political adversaries, the ultra-Orthodox. And so I want to ask you to reflect a bit on uh, how you see, based on your studying and learning from that webinar, but also in general, the ultra-Orthodox in relation to what we might call the mainstream of Israeli society, and what that means for our contention as the reform movement fighting for space for genuine pluralism in the state of Israel. It's interesting, you know, uh, just using the phraseology before, whether that's a question which also brings into, you know, into conflict values of Jewish and democratic. Because if I took in the, if I look in the, if in the lexicon of liberal Judaism, this is both de about democracy. I would have to apply the logic of both Jewish and democratic here. Is a group, a population group of 12% of the population um, who democratically are entitled to an in the same amount as anybody else, and uh, and who use the same language of Jewishness as anybody else does, and um, so in a in a way one could sort of frame the entire thing just as a classic sort of clash of interests in a democracy of any. We just happen to feel sensitive to it because it's about issues which somehow are elevated and have spiritual significance, but actually it's a political fight, and uh, in that sense we probably don't have very much to offer because or expect to get very much back because we because politically we're not a strong. Group. They are. All of these conversations exist in multiple different contexts. There is a context of where this sits, which is um, it's in a place of in the study of defamation or dissonance. Um, Haredim are a vilified part of Israeli society. They're vilified by a number of group of people, and I think it's to the shame of the liberal movement that have not managed to find a, a kind of a language to talk about Haredim that, does, that they would never dream of applying to anybody else. So, it, which, so in other words, we don't come into this neutrally, maybe because we're bruised and battened and hurt and so on and delegitimized, but nonetheless, in a democracy and according to our values, there's a need to kind of engage with the Haredi society in an intelligent kind of, in a, in a meaningful and legitimate kind of way. Um, how do we, in the end, sort of fight this one out? I mean, we're in a tricky one because, you know, the, the starting point of the... Our core starting point is different. In a way, the Haredim play, play the, the game of democracy but know where the battle lines are drawn and will use political force in order to achieve certain goals. Do they really care what we're teaching in our schools? No, absolutely, because they're not really interested in our schools. They're interested in whether our schools intrude into the public domain. And if our schools or if our position changes the rules of the state, it becomes a fascinating kind of, by the way, and again, this is where these boundaries sort of start to falter a little bit, where Haredim, in, I think in a previous generation, might have said the Haredi community was only interested in the Haredi community and because it didn't legitimize the state of Israel. In, in, in the real world, the Haredim are deeply involved in the Jewish character of the state, not just implicitly for them. It does bother them if we change the, you know, the, you know, the laws of status, the Dine Shuta, as they're you know, embellished in the, in the status quo arrangement. And um, there's a real battle, and you know, we're engaged in that, in, one hopes, in the most decent way possible. But there are certain things we're not going to be able to get round. One is that these people are citizens and they can vote. And um, I think, the, ironically, I, I think the areas of, of contest are not really specifically ones about reform or liberal Jews. There are lots of people who we disagree with about lots of different things. But we tend not to sort of, sort of 
focus on them as the specific group. Probably, if I really thought the area where we might feel more troubled, it would be by the more messianic sort of um, radical right group in Israel, um, who are closer to our territory because they come from within the sort of post-Enlightenment world of modernity and speak a similar kind of political language, um, and for whom there I have much greater fears. But the ability of the reform movement or liberal Jews to engage in Haredim in Israel, by definition, I think a little bit of the effort is coming more on one side than the other. Um, I'm intrigued, by the way, just in my work, how many Haredim are genuinely interested in trying to work out who on earth we are and are in also interested. And I think, by the way, in the end, where it comes down to is a core piece of the Israel story, which is the notion of the public space and the private space. Israel, by by its own self-declaration and by its DNA, is an area in which the public domain is defined in Jewish terms. That's the nature of sovereignty, it's the state, it has all the civil religion connected to it, and the moment Jewishness is in the public domain, then it's going to be fought over by all the various different dissonant voices. Us, it becomes fair game. It's fair game, and and, and and you know it feels and and you know on the one hand, sort of a more sort of sanctified kind of I don't know better kind of I don't know maybe it's a diaspora liberal Judaism. It's we're not used to, or it's not used to kind of fighting for Jewish space in the public domain because it somehow seems a little bit dirty. Why are we fighting over these things? These things are beautiful. They exist in synagogue spaces and and summer camps and discussion groups and so on. And now we have to fight the hell to kind of get them into the public domain somewhere else. So I think for me what the, the, the kind of the bit that we're getting towards I think is this phrase which we're all going to have to accept um, however uncomfortable it is which is a notion of a status quo. There may just have to be in order for our functioning of radically disagreeing groups of Jews a recognition that in the public domain there will be we're going to live with boundaries and what can take place in one area might not be the same as what takes place in another area and that includes in education, not just in the physical space of closing neighborhoods or whatever. Um, boosting support for non-Orthodox streams of Judaism in the public domain is, a, is an expression of the public domain. And it may kill everyone to do it, but I'm sorry, that's part of my democratic right to demand that my children get the, we're past that now, but my children got a, an, a, an education that was Jewish and was paid for by the state and should not be preferenced by the fact that they're not belonging to the more favored state, who it's the slavery group who have their own sort of stream within Israeli public education. To put all that together, I don't know, what, what are we doing? I think we're having to kind of Again, navigate these questions. What are our democratic principles? But where are we kind of trying to work out where Judaism can stand? I, I think the the to take the democratic element at your word. I think we would change the phrase from status quo to homeostasis, which is a more dynamic way of appreciating the fact that yeah. there may be a balance that we can't quite get out of, but it isn't a fixed balance, yeah. and it comes and goes. And I think the public domain. I heard you talk about the, the civil domain, where with schools and taxation and neighborhoods, and one of the things that's unique about Israel is there's the religious element of the public domain, and that, I think, is much more, they're, they're, it, the rub is really, I think, in that space, and yeah. to distinguish between the public domain in North America, right. which doesn't have that rub in the same way. Or it does, but it's implicit, and we haven't fully reckoned with it because it's implicit, whereas in Israel, at least it has the merit of right. being it's explicit, in and, and nobody can deny it. It's in your face. Right. I mean, there's a general comment, which I think is intriguing, where I'm less denominationally bound, <clears throat> but just interested in the flow of of identity in society, which is that Judaism is 
way more popular than it ever used to be. Uh-huh. Judaism was always more popular than people, I think, imagined, because there used to be an official sort of ideology of secularism, which which kind of dealt with Judaism in minimalistic terms, or in a, in a way which it turns out... mean Judaism in Israel is more popular? I'm talking about in Israel. Yeah, yeah. About in Israel. And Just I think that, um, that now, you know, Israeli Judaism is far less denominational, it's far more fluid, the boundaries are porous, and, you know, so it's not even about liberal Jews or reformed Jews, it's about people who want to identify as Jews, like in a religious way, and who are engaged in any number of the sorts of things that we would otherwise talk about, which is, inc- it's amazing. I mean, I have to say it's one of the most uplifting parts of watching Israeli society in action. And there, ironically, you know, there's a counter side coming from, again, the Haredi world, which is also kind of deconstructing itself. The, the, you know, we had a speaker who came to, 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 to speak at an Israel seminar a year and a half ago, and she said very clearly, I have no belief that my grandchildren will understand, that the Haredi world that my grandchildren will live in will look anything like the Haredi world I live in now. It will, in other words, 57 varieties of Haredim, whatever, will dissipate and will become integrated into the Israeli conversation. And she said by her own personnel, she's a little bit of a kind of an outlier, but she said by, but I think by her own definition, her desire to schlep from Bnei Brak to come to talk to a group of rabbinical students in HUC, and she kind of really challenged them hard. You know, she said, you know, we've really got to deal with the question of lesbians. And everyone in the room sort of like, excuse me, there's a woman with a shaitl who's come from Bnei Brak. <laughs> she just said the word lesbian in front of us. I mean, and the earth didn't, you know, swallow her up. And, you know, what she was kind of saying was, we know what's going on in the world. You know, we're right, changing right. like you're changing. And um, so I think, you know, maybe that question of which space, public space, civil space, cultural space, um, uh, but it, it, it's dynamic. And I think everyone needs to be on their, on their toes and know which is the, rec- the correct value. Well, here's to the two of you for being primary uh, interlocutors and exponents of that change for good. And uh, it's my honor to be your colleague and to uh, share these conversations with you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very you. much for having me. You've been listening to the College Commons Podcast, produced and edited by Jennifer Howd and brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. For this URJ Biennial Series, special thanks to Mark Palavin, the URJ Chief Program Officer and Biennial Director, and Liz Grumbacher, Director of North American Events. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.